morning, everybody, and welcome to Calvary. I want to have a special shout out to all of our guests this morning. And uh, we are all out of bulletins. So if you're looking for a bulletin, we are completely out this morning. We're packed. Um, actually, you can find all the information about the service on our Version Bible app. So if you have that, make sure you look at our location and you will find all the sermon notes and all the announcements. Uh, do keep following us on social media because that's how you are going to find out about our services and things like that. Um, as far as announcements go, uh, the staff is still here in the office this week. If you need to get a hold of us through the phone or email, and I don't think that's going to change, but if it does, we'll post that on our social media accounts. And it is possible, we've been talking about having drive-in church next week where we'll meet out in the back uh, with speakers. You just stay in your car, and uh, it's possible we might have music, and of course we'll have the message, uh, but we'll see if we can make something fun of this the last week that uh, we're all kind of isolating ourselves. Uh, I don't think I have any other kind of announcements like that. Just continue to check our Facebook page and Instagram account for any announcements. And I want to start out this morning by just simply opening in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a tremendously generous and good God to your people. You have time and time again demonstrated your love, your compassion, your interest in us, personal interest in us, and we know that not a single hair on our head is unnumbered. You know it all, Father. You know every event, you know every task, you know every responsibility lying ahead of us. You know every challenge in front of us. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to watch over us, guide us, give us peace, comfort, joy, that you would give us a love for one another that surpasses all understanding, that we might reach out with kindness and generosity, that we might be known as a people who love Pueblo and reach the neighbors around us. Continue to watch over us, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning obviously is a little bit different, and I would encourage you in the comments for this live video portion that if you have a prayer request or something that you'd like us to pray for, please put that in the comments, and then at the end of the service, which is going to be a truncated, a little bit shorter of a service, um, we'll go through those and pray for them. Uh, but I want to start out by just reading in a very encouraging passage of Scripture, and then we'll move on to our message. Uh, that passage of scripture is from the Gospel of John and the 15th chapter. And I'm going to read about 17 verses, but I want, it's incredibly encouraging, so let's read through that. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I'll give everybody a second to turn to it in their Bible, or on their phone, or Google it. John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches." If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown and withers away. Some branches are picked up and thrown in the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish, 
and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. What other time do we have than to demonstrate our fruit, demonstrate our Christian lives, that in a moment that is a trial, a moment that is a difficulty, an uncertainty, here is where the evidence lies that your faith is genuine and growing and connected to Christ. He continues in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My commandment is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, in the name of the Father, will give to you. This is my command, love each other. What great words of remembrance, what great words of incredible strength and comfort. Because Jesus talks about our joy being made complete in him. Our joy is not in the circumstances. Our joy is not in what we have and what we don't have. Our joy is only found in and through Jesus Christ. Remaining near to him and then demonstrating to the world around us that our relationship is indeed true and genuine, that faith is on display. That actually kind of segues nicely into this morning's message. Now, we've been looking at this season of the year at Lent and what that means, this idea that um, we identify with the sacrifice of Christ. Not that we're being sacrificed, but that we identify with his sacrifice. That we take a moment and realize that what he went through was indeed painful, his suffering was real, it was genuine, and it was effective. And during this time leading up to Easter, it gives us a moment to reflect upon the sorrows that Christ went through and also the tremendous debt that he paid on our behalf. And how do we respond to that? How do we relate to that in a way that is challenging each and every day, that keeps us on our toes, but also keeps us vividly remembering not only the suffering, but the glory. One of the things that Lent kind of is known for, at least in the last maybe 100 or 200 years, is this idea of fasting. And um, some, some arms and families of Christianity go so far as uh, telling its people, you know, on every Friday, don't eat meat, you can only eat fish. Other people give up other things. Uh, we're giving up meeting together, for example, this uh, Lent season. Uh, so it's, it's an idea of giving up a sacrifice, sacrificing something to remind us of the suffering that Jesus went through and the glory that Easter will become and is in our lives. 
And so fasting kind of always comes up when we talk about Lent. There is a lot of information in scripture about fasting. How to fast, when to fast, why to fast, what to fast from. Sometimes there's a single meal fast, sometimes there's a day fast, sometimes there's a week, and sometimes there's a 40 days. Scripture gives us lots of information, lots of descriptions, even in the life of Jesus, what fasting does. And fasting is always connected with a spiritual activity when it comes to a biblical fast. Uh, fasting may become very popular in our health circles right now, but it is spiritual in nature. Absolutely 100% spiritual, and fasting brings us to that constant dependence upon God, not just for our spiritual needs, but also our physical needs. It's that beautiful constant reminder that we are dependent upon God for every answer, for every slice of bread, and for every answer of prayer, we're dependent upon God. But we're not really going to talk about those details of fasting, how to fast, when to fast, why to fast, and the types of fasting. We kind of just went over that a little bit quickly. But um, if I may use the pun, but we're going to whet our appetites for fasting this morning as we look at Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. And in the end, what we will see through the first 12 verses in Isaiah, we'll see two different sections. Uh, it's not a to-do list. And in fact, it is directed to a people who are already fasting, who already spend a day, whatever that day is, observing a fast to God. But in the end, we're going to see that that fasting is merely a physical, external activity of show. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, God says that our spiritual life is vastly more important than what we show others, than how we live a spiritual life on the outside. He wants the heart. He wants our very soul, our very being, our very essence to be near to him. And the way we do that is through a contrite heart, a broken heart, a humble heart, a serving heart. And so it does no good to stand around and pump your chest and give yourself gold stars for fasting if it's not done for the right reason. So God uses fasting in Isaiah chapter 58 as an example of religious activity that is good, but if it's only external religious activity, God has some very harsh words for that. So we're going to start in the first five verses of Isaiah 58 and talk about the negative side of fasting, or the side that God calls Israelites on. The outward activity that's void of any spiritual reality. He starts by saying, Shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion, and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. So God wants this known. He wants it well-known, well-articulated that there is a root problem with merely physical religious activities trying to pawn those off as spiritual fruit. He says in verse 2, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right, and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me, 
for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. So they have a pretense. They have an outward appearance of holiness, of spiritual maturity, of deep concern for the things of God, for conversations that are all about God and what he wants of us and, and how he can lead us and guide us. For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near to them. Verse 3, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? This is the people asking God, we fasted. Where are you? We're trying to draw near to you. Where are you? We've humbled ourselves. Where are you? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. So he starts attacking the very heart and nature of the individual who gives this pretense of religiosity, this pretense of being holy, this pretense of being religious, this pretense of being a churchgoer. And he says, and you wonder why I'm distant from you. You wonder why you don't feel near to me. You wonder why I'm not answering your prayers. You wonder why you're struggling. Even after you've done all this religious activity, you've humbled your heart. And you declare to people, I've humbled my heart. And God says, you, the day of your fasting, you go and do as you please. You exploit all your workers, and he continues in verse 4, violently. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. I have no idea what the fasting was like in Israel during the days of Isaiah, but if it ended in fistfight among God's people, it was wrong. And this is more than just being hangry and eating a snicker bar. This is a characteristic of their life that when trouble and difficulty happens on the day they're supposed to be focusing on God's dependence, they end up fighting and curling with one another. They end up striking each other with their fist, fist fighting over who knows what. It doesn't matter. God says, you wonder why I don't hear you? Maybe it's because you're giving a show and there's no real spiritual life there in your heart. And nothing will bring out that real spiritual quality of heart than a trial, than a difficulty. And going without food for a day, fasting to God, your body does go through changes that becomes physically, you can be irritated. You can be very short with your temper, maybe. Especially if you're not used to it, and it's one of the first times that you've done it, you can become a little bit unhinged. But this isn't talking about a single individual. This is talking about the whole of God's people here in Israel. They were all unhinged. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. God calls them out for their fake religiosity and their fake holiness. Verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it not only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to God? 
Now, all of these things on face surface might seem good. I mean, you want to be humbled. You want to bow down before God. You want to acknowledge that you are dependent upon him. But God says, this isn't what I call a fast, because all of these things are external things. They don't have legs and feet. They simply are. It's simply hypocrisy. Simply hypocrisy. In Luke chapter 18, a great passage in Luke, a story that I'm sure you're all familiar with, but starting in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, I'll give you a second to flip there. We see a beautiful New Testament example of someone who beats their chest about how humble they are, who comes before God with not a contrite, broken heart, but one that is puffed up with their religious expertise and perfection outwardly. And we see that contrasted with a tax collector. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, we read, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So here we have the setting. These are people who feel they are self-righteous and they actually feel good about themselves because they're more righteous outwardly than other people. Maybe they obey better laws, maybe they, they dress more conservative, whatever it might be, they feel that that makes them special and righteous and probably should be acknowledged. And Jesus says, in this earthly story with a heavenly meaning, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Uh, the guy fasts, he's got to be good. And he ties, he gives 10% of all that he has. So he's not praying to God, Lord, be more real in my life. Lord, let me walk closer to you. He's not praying, Lord, forgive my sins. He's not praying, Lord, restore relationships. He's not saying, Lord, bring the Messiah. He's praying, really not a prayer. He's just giving a list of all of his accomplishments, of all that he's done right not humble. He's not even praying. He's bragging. Bragging about good things, fasting, humbling himself, tithing, good things, but he's bragging about it. He's boasting about it. He's wearing it as a badge of honor and in turn is judging others who do not outwardly live like he does. Wow, that might hit home to us a little bit judging others outwardly because they don't conform to our version of what real biblical holy Christianity looks like. And we judge them. And we judge them. In contrast to that, listen to verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. Didn't boldly go into the temple, just kind of stood off in a corner. Didn't want to take the prime spot that the Pharisee did. Didn't want to be seen next to the Pharisee. But he stood at a distance. 
he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his chest, his breast, and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He didn't go to God bragging. He didn't go to God listing all of his religious accomplishments. He realized that before God, all of his good works are like Isaiah says earlier in Isaiah, they are like filthy rags. They don't amount to anything. All of our efforts, all of our religious outward activity, God's looking at the heart. And the tax collector's heart was broken. He knew he needed God's forgiveness. The Pharisee needed God's forgiveness too. The Pharisee was just a sinner as the tax collector. Maybe not outwardly, but certainly inwardly, he was just as much of a sinner. One who boasted in his righteousness, one who looked to God to make him righteous. And so Jesus, in that last verse, verse 14 of Luke 18, makes the pointed application. He says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. So when that tax collector left that temple, when he left that moment of worship, when he prayed that prayer, God, forgive me, I am not righteous, help me, have mercy on me, he went away with peace. He went away with comfort. He went away with reassurance. He went away nearer to God. The Pharisee, I imagine, on the other hand, walked out of that religious moment which he made sure everyone saw him. I'm sure he walked away thinking, oh, how good it is to show others how to be religious, how to be mature, how to do this life. But I don't think he felt any nearer to God. He didn't feel peace. He didn't feel comfort. He didn't feel the warm embrace of God's mercy and forgiveness. He didn't think he needed any forgiveness. He thought he was already as close to God as anyone possibly could be. That is how deceptive a mentality that your righteous acts, that your outward reflection of obedience is what God is after. And Jesus says, for those, for all of those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So in the end, God says, hey, you guys can play this game in front of yourselves, and you can fool other people that you are righteous and holy and perfect and um, accomplished in every way possible. You can fool people. But in the end, God knows the heart. God can see through the deception. He can see through the hypocrisy. He can see through all the lies, all the works, everything that I do for an outward praise. He can see through all of that and says, in the end, that is the person who will be humble when they come face to face with me. That is the person who in the end will not be near to me. So we have an example of the parable that Jesus shares about an individual who 
thinks of their actions and how they should be praised for those actions more than a heart type of response to God. And so Isaiah, in, back in Isaiah chapter 58, starting in verse 6, we are given God's instructions of what a fruitful fasting looks like. And it's probably going to look a lot different than what you might automatically assume fasting should look like. It's not just a lack of food or stopping yourself from a particular activity for a certain amount of time. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? So he tells us, this is, this is what I want. When you fast, this is how you act and behave. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. So he's talking about bondage. And so he may be talking about slaves or abused servants or individuals who have been unfairly and unrightly punished. He says, if you want a fasting that really makes me happy, God says, then demonstrate with real life actions that you care for those around you. Don't tell them about your great fasting. Don't tell them how you did this great fast and you felt so near to God and you limited yourself no TV for an entire period of Lent. Oh, no. Put your faith in real action and love and serve others in a way that brings them peace, comfort, safety, and security. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, verse 7, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and do not turn away from your own flesh and blood? You know what pleases God? Is when we take care of those around us in need. Don't brag about your fasting. Don't brag about your church attendance. Don't brag about your Bible reading. Don't brag about whatever rule you think religion, religion and religiosity demands of you. Stop bragging about that. And start doing the basics of what we already saw in John chapter 15. Love one another. Demonstrate love for one another. And it looks real. It's giving others food, clothing, shelter, freedom, protecting that food, that clothing, that shelter, that freedom, helping them with real examples of love. Verse 8, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. He says that's when your Christianity is on display and that's when you feel and are noticed as the most... I, I know this sounds weird, but in order to be noticed... In order to be that light shining on a hill, that light that isn't hid under a bushel, you love others. And all of a sudden, without tooting your own horn, people notice they're different. Not because of the rules they keep, but because of the love they share in tangible, real ways. It says, then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. 
Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. All surrounding you is goodness. Surrounding you is joy. Surrounding you is the comfort you so desperately need. Surrounding you is God's protection. You want God to protect you? You want God to be near you? Then you love others sacrificially with real demonstrated, tangible actions. And then listen to this amazing promise in Isaiah 58, verse 9. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am You want to feel near to God. You want to feel as if your prayers are not bouncing off the ceiling and going directly to God. You want to have that moment where you have that, that mountaintop experience. Then you need to love others in a tangible, real way. I think that could be one of the greatest lessons of Lent itself. The season where we focus on the sacrifice that Christ made and make that connection. The reason why he made that sacrifice was why? So he could get rewarded? So he could get written down in history books and scripture? No, he did it. Why? Because he loved you. Because he loved me. And that seems so unfair that he would love someone such as me. With all that I've done and all that I continue to do, Many times as I mess up and sin, how can God still love me? That's the type of love we need to have for one another. That's the type of love that we need to display to others. And God says, and I'll be near to you. That's the secret and key to the Christian life of being near to God, of walking with him. It is loving others in such a way that it costs us Food, clothing, shelter, time, energy, and resources. Everything that it cost God. And in fact, it cost Jesus much more than that, didn't it? It cost him his life. It cost him his very life. And he was happy to give that. He was happy to lay down his life for a friend. He continues... The rest of verse 9, 10, 11, and 12, he says, If you do away with the yoke of oppression and with the pointing finger and malicious talk, imagine back in the days of Isaiah, some 2,000 years ago, people were still going, Oh, do you see that? I can't believe they're doing that. Oh, look at that. Isn't that wrong? They're still pointing and making fun of people. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy, satisfy the needs of the oppressed then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday real life application here God has brought us to this moment in history which is not unique to us other generations and cultures have gone through something just as similar and some in some extent far far more damaging and if you're feeling insecurity, distress, 
if you're not feeling the peace of God surrounding you and comforting you, if you're not feeling the nearness of God, if you're fearing the next moment you go out to a store or you're fearing even going to the store, then maybe our first course of action needs to be, how can I love on someone? How can I love on someone? And it might be a phone call out of the blue. It might be delivering someone a gift, some of your food, some of your clothing, offering your shelter ahead of your own needs. Because when the focus is on loving others for Christ, God says everything else is going to fall into place. It's going to feel as if the light has risen out of the darkness, if all the depression has gone away, and the night has become like the noonday. So the most desperate moment, the most uncertain moment, the most scary moment can be wiped away with a sincere act of love towards others in the name of Christ. And he says in verse 11, more of a promise than the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and you will be strengthened and will strengthen your frame and will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. What he's talking about there is comfort. Even in the midst of a sun-scorched moment or a dark moment, God's there. And being with God wherever there is, is good. It's good because you know that that relationship of faith and maturity is real. That the relationship with God is real. It's not fake. It's not built on pretenses. It's not based on obedience to some random law that you might put up in front of yourself. It's based on a relationship. As Jesus said, friends. Friends. And the benefit of being friends with God is that comfort in the midst of a storm. It's that calm in the midst of a storm. It's like the story of Jesus with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee and that storm rushes in and Jesus is sitting at the front of the boat just asleep. Like no care in the world. He's tired. He's sleeping. And the disciples are going crazy and they're, they're, they're frantic. Their life is about to end. The storm is just too big for them. And they look at Jesus and say, how can you be sleeping there? And he calls them on their lack of faith and tells the storm, be quiet, be still. And they look at him with amazement. How can this wave and the wind and the clouds and the rush of the, the rain, how can it all just obey this guy with a single moment of stop? And it does. Yeah, they're still on the water. They still have a journey to make. But that journey has all of a sudden become a spiritual moment where their faith is challenged, where their faith is grown. Because I think after that moment, they looked at those moments of sun-drenched darkness or storm, 
And they realized, if I'm with Jesus, even though it looks horrible around me, if I'm with him, I'm going to be more than okay. I'm going to be held eternally secure in his loving hands. That's what I think Isaiah is getting at in that verse 10 and 11. Lord will always guide you, always satisfy your needs. It doesn't matter if it's a drought or a famine. I'll strengthen your frame. You're going to be made fine. It's going to be like a well-watered garden whose springs never failed. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will rise up the old aged foundations and you will be called repairer of the broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. I'm talking about a place where God is known in very real terms. That we're called to live out our faith in such a way that the world around us notices it, recognizes it, not for our praise and for our glory, not for a pat on the back, but for his glory and for his worship so that our good works might point others to the comfort of Jesus Christ. And it starts and it's maintained not by religious activities like fasting alone, but when those religious activities are combined with a love for others that's genuine and sincere, a love that is reaching out, a love that is giving, then the fear subsides and there's strength and security where God's people are. The church is not a place that cowers. The church is a place that acknowledges the sovereignty of God and love for him and love for others in tangible ways. I've already talked about some ways that you might be able to do that even now, some tangible ways. And so I'd like to simply close in a prayer. And if we have any comments or requests online, now would be the time to quickly... Nope, nothing? Okay. That's fine. Uh, so, let's close in prayer towards that action of loving others. <laughs> Our gracious Father, uh, in this very unusual of days, this very unusual of services to you, no matter where we're gathered, you're with us. And no matter what we're wearing, where we're sitting, Lord, you're with us. And we pray, Father, that during such a time as this, and times of plenty and ease, don't let us forget to love those around us with a love that is tangible, a love that is meeting the needs of the poor and the suffering around us. Father, give us opportunity to display our faith and help us to become more than just actors of the Christian life. But let us become friends of this Christian life to others, that they too might find comfort and joy 
in peace and safety and security, in following such a loving, sacrificing servant as Jesus Christ, who is the true vine. In his name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. So thank you very much for joining us this morning. The video will be available on YouTube later on today. And uh, check in Facebook every morning. I'm going to try and do a real quick live broadcast to encourage us. Uh, not just now, but hopefully make it something regular for us even into the future. Uh, keep a lookout for our uh, social media posts. Again, we may have church in the parking lot, drive-in church next week. All depends on some other circumstances. Uh, so pray to that end and really honestly evaluate how you might be able to help someone in need even this week. God bless. See you next week. Bye.